0: Welcome to A Healthy Dose of Dialogue podcast. I'm your host, Don Antonucci, a senior executive overseeing consumer and commercial markets at Blue Shield of California. This podcast invites healthcare leaders to share fresh perspectives and engage in healthy dialogue about transformative marketplace trends and industry insights. Together, we're shaping a better future for people and healthcare. I'm excited to welcome Sarah Tepema. On the podcast. Sarah is president and founder of ALTA Health Advisors. Alta provides strategic advisory services to healthcare organizations who want to capture the value of population health programs. Thanks for joining me, Sarah.
1: Hey Don, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on the podcast.
0: You've spent most of your career, Sarah, as an actuary, uh, having worked at top consulting firms and then with Blue Cross Blue Shield of Illinois, Montana, New Mexico, Oklahoma, and Texas, uh, people, you know, often get confused um, and may not understand the important role that actuaries play. Uh, how would you describe to the average person what an actuary is and what actuaries do? Yeah.
1: Well, thanks for asking that question because I am currently a board member on the Society of Actuaries. So I I always love an opportunity to try to articulate that question. Um, And I would just say that actuaries get involved anytime there's a need to assess and quantify uncertainty or risk. And so that work is typically done, you know, with insurance, but it can be in a lot of different sectors. Um, for example, you know, we'll be talking about healthcare today, but also, you know, auto insurance or life insurance. Um, more recently, actuaries around the globe are getting involved in um, environmental catastrophe modeling or agriculture modeling. Um, you know, really anything that has an uncertainty to it that needs to be quantified. Um, and so in healthcare, you know, we we are looking, uh, we talk a lot about risk, and um, in traditionally that risk has been held by health insurers, but um, what we're trying to see and trying to move the needle a little bit is to shift that risk appropriately around so that um, other parties are assuming appropriate amounts of risk and therefore um, managing that risk better. And so x-rays can help understand and quantify how that actually should be moved around and and allocated appropriately
0: you've been doing this for um i think 30 years or so i read in your in your bio (laughs) and you know i guess one of the questions i would have about just the role of an actuary in the healthcare area is kind of what what have you seen as the major changes um for actuaries over that time period
1: Um, Well, that's really interesting. I I would say in healthcare, one of the things we are focusing more on is how can risk be appropriately shifted closer to the Closer to the member, closer to the consumer. Uh, meaning, can it be? Can we shift risk to providers who are working on a day-to-day basis, boots on the ground, with with members and patients? Um, and and what's the appropriate level of risk to shift that direction? Um, you know, and traditionally, it's always been held by the insurers. And um, we saw it in the 90s that there was, you know, that managed care backlash, quote unquote backlash. And that was the early part of my career um, when when people just started to react to an hmo telling a doctor what to do and and you know whether that's true or not and for right or for wrong um that's how it was perceived by consumers and and by you know the world in general so um that perception became reality we shifted kind of back towards fee-for-service medicine and and um what we're seeing now i think is a is a new focus on how uh how we can engage everybody, all the stakeholders, to make sure that that healthcare is a little bit more appropriately distributed. Um, So what I've been focused on most recently is is, um, looking at providers taking risk or companies that work with providers to provide some sort of healthcare intervention, um, assuming that risk and um, making sure that consumers are getting the care they need with high quality um, and that the outcomes are the right outcomes. Um, That outcome might be cost, that outcome might be better health, that outcome might be something totally different for a given population, but um, the point is that um, we're starting to measure outcomes. And I I think the difference between currently and, you know, 30 years ago is really we have a lot more data, we're able to use that data in new ways and um, really understand a population a lot better than we used to. I, we have ways to go, but I think it's, it's pretty cool that we can learn a lot about a population through data. Um, we can get the data more quickly than we used to be able to get it so that we can assess what's going on. Um, we're looking at new sources of data. So in health insurance, traditionally, uh, we looked at purely at claims data. And now we're able to start to get into medical records. We're starting to look at consumer data and overlaying that with healthcare claims data to say you know in a given census track what, you know what are we seeing in terms of uh, crime levels and poverty levels and air quality levels and that all that kind of stuff can really help inform um, you know a view of a population. Uh, so that's, a, that's I think an exciting development that enables us to start to more appropriately allocate risk to different to different stakeholders.
0: You know, it kind of makes me think about technology and the access and the tools that you've mentioned. You know, to look at data, analyze it. Do you feel like uh, that the technology has, is sort of outpaced sort of where the actuarial industry has been, and now it's kind of catching up, or do you feel and starting to figure out how to use that, um, or do you do you feel like there's still a ways to go with leveraging technology? And data in different ways uh, to really, you know, observe and, and, you know, make changes in healthcare related to data.
1: There's a lot of really, really cool technology, and I guess the, the, the tricky part is always connecting that technology to an outcome. You know, and, and again, that's what we're all trying to do—actuaries or data analytics folks. Uh, we're trying to connect. You know, what what that technology does to measuring what it actually did in terms of the healthier population. That's really at the end of the day what we're trying to do. Um, And sometimes we can do that and sometimes it's very, very hard to do that. So uh, I think one of the things that's really cool about the technology that I've been seeing is, it's, it's kind of technology that we're all using, but it's being used in a very focused way. So like a lot of the innovation that is in healthcare right now is very precision oriented. And so for example, you've got technology tools around. I work with a client that works with um, irritable bowel disease and Crohn's disease specifically using a technology tool or um, pregnancy or, um, you know, pharmacogenetics testing. I mean, all these things that are very, very precise are using, you know, iPhone or whatever, smartphone technology, or really kind of, you know, maybe Apple watch technology or other wearable technologies. um, But that uh, kind of using the same technology, but trying to get at, you know, either through text messaging or through engaging the consumer in some way. Um, and so, again, it's it's collecting all that data and then it's what you do with that data to really measure the outcome from it. That's the that's the hard part. Um, I think we're seeing a lot of advances in that. And, um, you know, one of the things that I've been trying to do a lot more work around is, is how do you evaluate those outcomes in a statistically rigorous way, um, in a way that you feel like you're not just, Incentivizing randomness, but you're incentivizing actual change in behavior and change in health. Um, and so, uh, I, I've been working a lot with another firm, and that's what they focus on. They're predictive modeling experts, and and can really take a look at, you know, that data set, and try to understand. You know, do you have enough? members with that intervention do you have enough of a savings to really say yes this is not just randomness this is actual savings and and what we're finding is yeah a lot of these interventions really do demonstrate uh better health i I keep saying savings that's sort of a catch-all term because i don't I, i think we need to move away from purely talking about cost it's just you know there are some things that are much more important than just costs um and so we need to talk about is that population healthier is their Crohn's disease managed? You know, is that pregnancy well managed for better outcomes for the baby and the mom? You know, is it is that testing actually going to lead to better drug interactions that don't that don't harm the patient and, and result in long-term health consequences? So that's the kind of stuff that we really need to be thinking about. Not not did you reduce costs next quarter, but is that patient healthier in the long run?
0: And when you think about all of what you just talked about, is there something that really rises to the top for you that you're most excited about related to the work you do?
1: A couple of things. You know, what I've, what I've seen a lot of is really a lot of the innovation is happening and anything that helps connect people to their health or helps help the provider connect to that patient and keep them healthier. Um, and, and nothing has disrupted that more than this pandemic crisis, right? So, um, you know, we we keep hearing about the need for connection, especially you know among the elderly, especially among those with chronic conditions. And so what's exciting to me is like new new products or technologies that can really make those connections and, and keep people um, keep people talking to their doctors or keep them involved in the community, keep in touch with them, making sure they're not you know if they're uh, they have opioid use disorder for example, make sure that they're coming in for treatment and and keeping connected and not just completely losing touch and um, letting their disease take over. Uh, you know, one of the things that really scares me about the pandemic is, and I've heard this from cancer providers, for example, is, uh, you know, cancer diagnosis is, is way down this year because people are afraid to go in, um, they're afraid to get their diagnostic tests, you know, so even people who currently have the disease are staying away. Um, and what is that going to mean for next year? And the following year or even the year after that in terms of um, cancer treatment. So I think you know, anything that can keep people connected, whether it's telehealth or wearables or whatever it is, is, is really, really important right now. So I would say that's exciting and also scary when it's not
0: happening. Back to outcomes. You've talked about really improving outcomes and not just being focused on cost, you know, that's part of it, but you know, whether it's experience or actual health quality outcomes, do you feel like the pandemic and where we are with technology and all that combined has accelerated really positive work in this area or do you feel like it's too early to tell um because you know the pandemic does have adverse effects i think it's spiking out some of the inequalities and things that we're seeing yeah. in populations
1: yeah oh 100% um you know i think i think if nothing else it's disrupted and you know nothing Creates change like a big disruption, and it's you know there's not one single person or company or organization that has not been affected by this whole pandemic. So in that regard, it's it's good. You know, it really has jolted us out of reality. So we're going to see big strides in things like telehealth, and we already have obviously. Um, but you know, I agree that the whole the disparities in care, um, the fact that you know this this disease is affecting people of color much much worse than um, you know other others and also people lower income much worse than others um, and, you know there's lots of reasons why that's happening and there's lots of reasons we don't even understand why it's happening and I think we do need to understand that a little bit better um, you know, one of the other, I think, think, disturbing trends, and I'm just going to be blunt here, is that our public health infrastructure is not keeping up. And um, it, it wasn't anyway, but now we are it's really, really exposed with this pandemic. And so um, I think we're going to suffer for that in the long run. Um, other countries, I think, have managed it better because they have invested in public health and um, we can take a lesson from that, I hope, and, and really start to invest in, you know, in things like social determinants of health, in public health infrastructure, in keeping people healthy before they're actually, you know, sick with a condition. Um, but if nothing else, we're, we're really seeing sort of that all open and exposed and, and what that has meant for our population now.
0: It makes me kind of think I did in sort of uh, getting ready for, for this uh, talk with you I read the article that you did, um, I think it was back in 2018 in the Actuary Magazine around disparities of health, uh, equitable care uh, may lead to lower cost. And you know a couple of the, the things that jumped out at me were, you know, it, in that article it mentioned African-American women are three to four times more likely than white women to die from pregnancy related causes. Uh, African American infants in the U.S. are more than twice as likely to die as white infants, um, and you know we see lots of different statistics like that. Um, but when you when you see those stats with what you just talked about with our public health infrastructure, uh, what do you think we need to do and when to really start to turn these statistics the other way and, and have it be a much more equitable system?
1: Yeah, it's it's certainly not easy, right? Um, One of the things that's interesting is, um, you know, maternal mortality and infant mortality in the U.S., which, by the way, is just... utterly unacceptable situation absolutely unacceptable that this is and it's been this way for a really long time and I don't think it's gotten really gotten better with time in fact I think it's gotten worse in the recent few years um I was listening actually to a presentation from a couple of Boston University professors the other day on this topic and um you know they said if nothing else it's it's great because this issue has finally surfaced as as a major issue and there's you know, congressional testimony happening. People are finally seeing it for what it is. And so to me, that's great. Like at least it's being exposed. Um, you know, one of the theories about about that, you know because it's not that's not a socioeconomic issue, uh, which a lot of people would like to just say, oh, that's just because you know poor women have poor outcomes and they have worse access. But actually that that phenomenon affects uh, very, you know, educated high income black women just almost as much as poor you know poor black women so it's it's not a socioeconomic issue um, and so one of the things also this year we've had you know so much racial unrest um and and again opening that up and exposing it is is a good thing um, but we do need to act and um you know one of the theories is that, that institutional racism is really contributing to that problem of, of racial differences and maternal mortality. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of theories around this concept of weathering, which I, I had, you know, I didn't know much about until I started to research it a bit, but just that the the stress of institutional racism can take its toll on a person's health in, in ways that we don't understand. So what I'd love to see is that that get studied? And what is the effect of, of long-term stress? I mean, you know, we know, for example, that children um, with high ACE scores, and um, it's a score that basically evaluates whether a child has stress in their home and in their life. Um, and when they've looked at ACE scores for children, um, and then long-term health outcomes there's a huge disparity you know so so in, in other words if you've had abuse in your home um, or you know uh, housing transients a lot in your home or or drug abuse in your home um, or you know other other things that can really affect a child you see major major differences in long-term health and and it's not just the physical aspect; it's that long-term impact of stress, and so to the extent that we can start to study that more, I, I know lots of folks are studying that, but I think, um, you know, I don't, I don't know that there is a, a very concise estimate or quantification of it. But I would love to see that. I, I would love to see actuaries study that too, because I think that would be a really, really interesting uh, outcome. So, so I think sort of those underlying; those are really, really underlying. Um, causes of poor health that we we need to study um it's one thing to say yep people have um you know people of color have different health outcomes or kids with a scores have different health outcomes it's another thing to say why is that happening what exactly is contributing to that and how can we address it and so um you know back to what can we do uh again a public health infrastructure would help you know support for for families um who need support for uh, substance abuse, or domestic abuse, domestic violence, or neighborhood violence and crime—you know—all of that would help. I think you know, those are those are things that can be done at a societal level that aren't necessarily healthcare-specific, but will definitely contribute to good health.
0: And do you feel like that's trending in the right direction? Our focus on that, um, or kind of still sort of neutral, or it's it's getting you know worse. I mean, how would you? How would you summarize kind of where we stand as, you know, in the healthcare industry overall in terms of really focusing on, on making improvements here?
1: Depending on who you are in this country, you can have the best healthcare in the world or the worst. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I, I don't think you can answer that question, you know, definitively across the board. Um, I, You know, we do know that compared to other OECD nations, so those are the sort of the developed countries of the world, um, we have the highest healthcare costs. Per capita GDP, and we have the lowest investment in in um, uh, social uh, infrastructure, and and that's that's just a fact. And in it, if you look at us, you know, in total, the spending is about in the middle of the pack of all of these developed countries. But when you look at the distribution between healthcare and uh, social investment, it's it's flipped. We're we're just we look very different than other countries. Um, And so to me, and given that our health outcomes in general are at the bottom of the pack for all those countries, to me, that tells me that maybe that that investment ratio is not the right one and that maybe we can take a lesson from some other countries. But that is no easy task because that's going to really take, you know, again, investment in public health, investment in social structures. Um, I'm not sure where this country is related to that at this point, Um, but if we want to see better health for everybody, it's going to have to change. I think that's my personal opinion, but I do really think that it has to change.
0: Is there anything specific, maybe that you not only studied but brought the data together, or seen you know some of your clients actually apply it and actually get a positive result, better outcomes? Um, and then is that something that you know you feel like is scalable, um, or or something that? people should be paying more attention to. How, how would you describe some of that work? Because I know you're heavily involved with providers and health plans in, in your career.
1: A lot of what I've been working on are these very targeted and very precise um, interventions. And, and they do make a difference and they they do generate better health and, and even cost savings down the road. Um, it's really exciting to see that and it's exciting when you can see a result that does that. Um, and you know what's interesting is that when it's that precise it's it's scalable to that precise uh to that precise condition but not necessarily to all conditions and you know so we've seen a lot in terms of value-based care and payment model design you know we've we've seen a lot of success and maybe mixed results with the aco model um you know what i'll just point out one interesting thing i think has happened over the last few years is that CMS has really become a leader in, in bringing out some of these new models. Whereas uh, it used to be that the commercial market and even employers were the ones that were really leading the pack in terms of you know new new ways to address healthcare, new ways to save costs and stuff like that. Um, now we're seeing CMS also taking the lead. I would say employers haven't fallen behind, but it's great to see that CMS is really uh, committed to trying to to look at new payment models. Um, and, and they're showing a lot of great results. And even in the ACO model, which has had mixed results in the past, you know, we just saw some results that came out this week that um, were really pretty favorable. Uh, they're they're doing a lot with bundled payment, and they're also doing a lot with primary care. So I think CMS recognizes the need for that, you know, boots on the ground primary care model that supports, its you know, supports beneficiaries of Medicare. Um, you know, I think a lot of health plans have already seen that with primary care, you know, Patient center medical homes and primary care models that support um, that support the the patient and more than just, you know, an office visit. They they make sure people have transportation, they make sure that people have, you know, there's there's seminars, they can learn about diabetes, or they can come in and have coffee and, and they're really engaging, you know, they're they're really working hard to engage that beneficiary. So um, those kinds of models that that do a good job of engaging of engaging the member, keeping them connected, um, keeping in touch with them. Those are the those are the things that I think are really, um, you know, they're not going to generate savings next quarter or better health next quarter, but they're going to generate better health in the long term.
0: In my career, and then you know my current focus and, and what we're focused on at Blue Shield is around value-based care and moving you know away from fee per service and. It's not easy. We've got you know our accountable care organization uh, products, and you know they are growing, uh, and we want to see them grow more because we're finding that it is better care and it is you know more yeah. affordable over time. Um, it, you know the other thing you mentioned is sort of uh, the, the commercial market, um, and you know, there's there's many different populations. I think for example Medicaid, and you know you and I had a chance to you know speak previously is is a population that um, you know some of this work um, has gotten off the ground you know faster like Medicaid some with Medicare um, do you you know if we think about Medicaid some of our most vulnerable populations out there um, since that's been an area of focus how? How far along do you think we are, even with a population like that, let alone the commercial market, which really hasn't brought this into play with social determinants of health? Do you feel like there's some really good models out there and good works in different state that that we need to pay attention to um, a lot, or is there just a whole lot more to do there?
1: Well. There's there's a whole lot more to do, but I, I, there is some hope. I mean, I think I've seen some really interesting programs. Yeah, I think a lot of them are focused on two big issues. One is food security and, and healthy food, um, and the other, well, actually three: healthy food, um, housing stability, and and homelessness. And then the third one is transportation. And transportation is fairly has been not easy to solve, but um, it's a little easier to solve because it's really about just getting a member to their health care appointment. Um, so that's sort of like, okay, yeah, that's a direct impact to health care. But the other ones are, are trickier because they're more about general, a person's general health. You know, homelessness, I think, started the, the whole uh, housing security issue started as as a way to keep people out of the ER because they needed a warm place to sleep. I mean, that's kind of a, that's a probably too blanket an answer, but, um, you know, the ER ER, visits are definitely impacted by homelessness. And so to the extent that people have a stable place to live and can manage their chronic condition better, because they have a stable place to, you know, to sleep every night, um, they will stay out of the ER much more often. Um, You know, food security is probably another level up in terms of uh, harder to connect to healthcare, but obvious that it needs to happen and people need, you know, a good place three solid meals every day. So um, I, I think as you go more and more upstream, number one, it's it's harder to connect that to um, an ROI. And unfortunately, that's what really, you know, Medicaid and payers would really like to see that ROI. Um, and two, it becomes more and more an issue of, uh, I would say, you know, governmental policy and uh, community policy than it is about a healthcare payer and so whose whose job is it to make sure that people have affordable and healthy food. I mean that yes of course that the payers care about that because it can affect the person's health but shouldn't we all care that our that members of our society aren't you know can't can't get healthy food and shouldn't we all make sure that kids have food to eat every day. So you know, I think Medicaid has made a lot of those strides just because there's a lot more of a direct impact to its population. Um, however, that doesn't mean that the commercial market shouldn't be paying attention to this, and and it is starting to. I mean, I think um, you know National Business Group on Health, or I think they're called Business Group on Health now, did a survey, um, and and what they showed is that a lot of employers are really looking at this in their healthcare strategy, which is wonderful. You know, they they're all paying attention, and, and they're focused especially on um, you know, healthcare literacy and, um, you know, education, but they're also thinking about food access and they're also thinking about um, housing stability, which is great. You know, I, I heard an anecdotal statistic that something like 3 to 5% of the working population are at risk for homelessness. So this is not, you know, 5% of, a, of an employed population is a pretty significant number. And so this is not just an issue for Medicaid. This is an issue that we all need to be worried about in, in all of our products and, and, you know, health
0: plans yeah it you know it's kind of when when you were speaking it made me think of you know some work that i followed in like i'm not sure if you're familiar with it or followed it but the blue zones um you know blue yeah. zones are yep. in, in the different areas of the world where people are more likely to live to 100 or more and and i just love that work with dan buettner and um yeah and i know different states have you know kind of uh you know looked to create that environment and i think Mm-hmm. key point there is really it's it's your environment that promotes your health and longevity.
1: Absolutely. And, and also that personal connection. That's the one thing that he kept going back to is, is that people who have, you know, just it's fascinating research. I mean, I could We could go on all day about it because I think it's really interesting. But in all of those cases and all of those blue zones, you had people living in multi-generational housing, spending time, you know, grandchildren and grandparents, or, you know, they had you know, grandparents taking care of kids, they saw their families every single day. To me, that is very, very telling. And, you know, our, our American society is moving away from that. And unfortunately, that's just kind of been a reality. But uh, we we have lessons that we can learn from that for sure. You know, and I think, again, the pandemic is exacerbating this aspect of loneliness and disconnection. And so um, that's actually, I think, another thing an employer can do uh, for its employees that um, that maybe they don't think about as much, but while well, they think about it a lot is is b- providing an inclusive environment for its employees where they feel like they have a sense of belonging, they have a sense of connection and, and um, community uh, because that will go a long way to improving their health. And, you know, I think, you know, you see employers doing things like business resource groups or whatever employee resource groups or whatever you want to call them to try to make people have a, a community that they feel they can belong to. Um, and they do that to keep people, you know, yeah. to, for retention purposes and to keep people productive, but it really also has a, a very strong impact on their health, I believe.
0: Yeah, and I, I don't know how you think about this too, but <laughs> even before the pandemic, the focus on mental behavioral health for employers seemed to just be getting a bunch more exposure. And then with the pandemic, yeah. it's accelerated. And, um, I you know, I think a key part of that is looking at your population. It is social determinants of health, it's, it's, it's those things. But anything that you're seeing in that regard around mental behavioral health um, with employers or any population that's, that's uh, a, a surprising trend for you or, or encouraging?
1: Um, I, well, I just think that these integrated, you know, like patient-centered medical homes, where it's an integrated model, uh, you absolutely have to have behavioral health as a part of that. You, you can't separate physical and behavioral health. And I, and I think we're seeing that more and more. Um, so payment models need to recognize that too um it's tricky but i think it can be done and i think there are um primary care models uh I, you know especially some of the some medicare advantage type primary care models that really do integrate behavioral health into um their model uh with pretty good results so there are a few providers i know of that that are doing that well and um again it's it's not just uh it's not just on the, at the primary care visit but it's keeping connected with phone calls or bringing people in for coffee or, um, you know, checking in on them in their home if you have to and making sure they're okay. Um, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't have to be a psych, psychiatrist-level uh, physician. It can be a caseworker, who, you know, who's it, sometimes those caseworkers are better off as people from, that own, from their own community and, and a member's own community and, and who, who can speak their, literally speak their language and figuratively speak their language understand their family background, understand where they come from, um, know the neighborhood and, and the resources available. And those are the kinds of things that really help behavioral health. So it doesn't have to be a complex mental health model. It, it can be as simple as um, just keeping connected through, you know, the case. Source. I'm not saying that there isn't a need for complex mental health services. Of course there always is. But, um, you know, for that sort of general primary care model, I think there's a lot you can do with um with you know, people working who who maybe aren't highly trained medical specialists,
0: you know. Sarah, this is this has been fascinating. I, I'm curious to know, um, given the pandemic and everything going on, for you personally, has there been any silver lining to the to the pandemic as we've you know as you've been navigating and, and everyone else uh, COVID nineteen.
1: It's been a an interesting few months. Uh, I already worked from home, and so um, my my life, except that I'm not traveling anymore, so I do miss traveling. But otherwise, it's kind of nice just to be home and in a routine. Um, I guess one other benefit is my husband teaches orchestra, and so I get to listen to him teaching orchestra all day. So I get to hear little violins all day, which is actually quite quite nice um, and gives me hope for the world, you know, that there's kids who are still willing to take their lessons online and um, that makes me happy. Um, but yeah, it's been, you know, it's it's been a nice time for reflection, I guess. Um, and I think too, you know, just in terms of my work, um, as we talked about earlier, it's this disruption is is really, I think, going to change things. I hope it's going to change things for the better. Uh, I like to be optimistic about that. But um you know, there's nothing like a big disruption to to get people out of their comfort zones and and do new things. So, uh, I'm I'm hopeful for for that going forward.
0: Thanks for sharing that. And then, is there anything uh, else that you would like to share with our listeners, Sarah? This has been a great conversation.
1: Um, you know, I just just that um, I I hope, as you mentioned earlier, that that we can really move the needle on health equity and start to start to see changes, and maybe, again, the, the racial unrest and the pandemic have exposed a lot of these things that people weren't aware of before, and I hope that that awareness can can bring that forward. Um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to use my platform, as small as it might be in this world, um, to try to raise those issues and um, show that even somebody who's a numbers person or a dollars person like actuaries typically are, um, that that we can also join in that. Uh, join in that positive force for good, and and really move the needle for equity in healthcare.
0: Well, thank you, Sarah, and uh, just fascinating work. And thank you for what you're doing. Um, hey, thank you for taking the time to listen. I hope uh, you all walked away with uh, the fact that uh, Sarah, you know it, you know, we've got to get to a much more equitable health care system. And uh, there's there's work to do, I think, is the message. And there's also um, areas of hope and, and, uh, and areas where there is necessary disruption. Uh, for more information about Alta Health Advisors, check out their website at www.altahealthadvisors.com. And join us next time as we continue to bring you a healthy dose of insights and perspectives Based on conversations with leaders who are transforming healthcare. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple iTunes or Spotify, uh, or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at Dose of Dialogue. Thank you.